0: The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, The Drawing Specialists, Tether, Get Smart, Get Tethered, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, The Future of Intelligent Buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with, who is innovating and doing great work. Perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo.
1: Welcome to the Oedipus Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here again with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say
2: hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. This is going to be an interesting talk. I found out talking with Dan earlier, look, we know a few of the same people when we were working in New York at the same time. So interesting times, right? Always a small world, our business. Absolutely. I've had the pleasure of
1: presenting and listening to our uh, next guest for many years at uh, various industry conferences. Some of the notable projects on his resume, including the BASF uh, U.S. headquarters, the museum in Washington, D.C., first corporate headquarters, U.S. embassies in Sofia, Bulgaria and Cape Town, South Africa. And the Clinton Presidential Library, in the New York Times headquarters, and well, we we'll just throw in the Alcoa corporate headquarters as well. <laughs> He's a graduate of Princeton University and Cornell University, and is both a registered architect and professional engineer, which makes him really unique. He's an ASHRAE Life Fellow, a Fellow of AIA, and of course, a LEED Fellow. He's held senior VP positions uh, with the likes of Cisco uh, and Hennessy and WSP Black and Curtiz. Another high achiever to the Oedipus Complex podcast alumni. Welcome to the show, Dan Nall. Thank you. Really, it would take our entire podcast to go through your accomplishments and uh, contributions to the world of property development. We're not going to do that. (laughs) Instead, our listeners, of course, with many of our students, are looking for inspiration. They're interested in what forces uh, that were behind your lifetime drive to learn and lead within the architectural and engineering community
3: because you've done such a great job. So tell us your story. So I went off to school in the Northeast in 1966, wanting to be a physics major and an astronaut. And I was very young for my age and discovered that physics was hard and wound up getting a degree in English literature. I wrestled with Uncle Sam in the form of the U.S. Navy who had aspiration for my being on John Kerry's swift boat in Vietnam on the Mekong River. I broke my leg skiing very badly. Thus, uh, their aspirations were not fulfilled. After I did that and it became clear that I was going to get a medical discharge because of my injury, I realized that I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life and so I spent a weekend doing that and made actually a good decision in a very short time to pursue architecture because I like putting together things, solving problems, and I like things that I could see. As I got to architecture school at Cornell, however, I discovered that I was really good at solving problems but not necessarily very good at making pretty solutions. And so <laughs> wound up doing my work at Cornell in the program for computer graphics, where I wound up doing a lot of applications programming in good old Fortran 4 for thermal analysis of buildings. And ultimately, while I got my architecture degree, wound up... Being a much more technical person, spent some time as an energy consultant using energy modeling back in the very late, which point no one else was actually doing that. Did some more programming, wrote a building equipment simulation module for a thermal analysis program that my employer at that time had, uh, Berkeley Solar Group. Spent some more time as an energy consultant and then actually became a design, consulting engineer, HVAC designer in the early 80s. And that's what I've been doing ever since.
2: That's an interesting uh, origin story because it's so unusual for someone to go, well, from English lit to start with. But I take it you can write a really good memo, lots of pathos in that. (laughs) <laughs> I do write
3: fairly well, it's true. I did take that from my uh, English degree.
2: Well, that puts you in at 1% of engineers already, but then you <laughs> indicate absolutely. a registered architect <laughs> <laughs> and then an engineer. That is an unusual zigzaggy road. I have to say, congratulations on that.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Well, I've been very lucky that these decisions have worked out fairly well for me. And now that I'm quote-unquote retired, I find myself in a place where Once again, good fortune has presented me the opportunity to really do the kind of problem-solving, creative problem-solving that I love to do.
1: And the fact that you're a great communicator helps, and of course, your English literature degree (laughs) is a feather in your cap for that. I mean, I've had a chance of presenting with you, and I've also had a chance to also see you live doing presentations, and you're always great to listen to. And plus, you have just a ton of experience, so you know, you do it the old-fashioned way and people listen to you, you know? No, was a commercial. It was an investment firm. I can't remember what their slogan was. Something about people doing it the old-fashioned way and it works. I don't remember what it was, but it was you know, these two old grumpy guys around the table. <laughs> well, there's three three old grumpy guys here. <laughs> <laughs> But then, you know what? Then I bet all of us, if we talked about technology, and, the, and all of us have gone up the technology ladder. I don't know if you guys are still up on the technology ladder. I came down years ago. I just found it too complicated, too uh, time-consuming. It was parasitic on my brain and my social life, <laughs> and ultimately have come back down and said, you know, simple is good. I don't. I, don't <laughs> I, know what I think
3: that's true. I mean, in this business, there are too many people who become. Fascinated with the newest technologies, and they become bound to determine to implement you know a particular thing. I'm going to put a fuel cell in my building, whether or not it needs it just because it's cool and so you know i've really with the people that i've mentored over the course of my career really fought against that tendency that that really the most important thing is to sit down with yourself and try to figure out what actually is the problem that you're trying to solve in very simple first principles terms and this is actually something that i learned in architecture school which is been extremely important to me throughout my career, which was that at the time when I went to Cornell, it was very both high design and process oriented. And we very much studied what I call the discipline of design, which is you do your research and establish the context that you're working in. And then you write up a list of desired outcomes. These are the things that I want my solution to achieve. And then basically you come up with a hypothesis in architectural terms. It's called your party, your point of departure that says, I think that this strategy is going to solve this problem and help me achieve all these desired outcomes. And that party is a very kind of general kind of strategy. And then you start adding detail. And back in the day, you added that detail by putting another layer of yellow trace on top of your original drawing and drawing some additional detail. You'd look at it and you say, does this help or does this hurt? If it helps, you left it there. If it hurt, you pulled it off and pulled it and threw it away and put down another sheet of yellow trace. And I remember, you know, one of my architectural critics coming all over my desk and looking down and seeing my Part T and the things that I wanted to achieve. And he says, I think you got about a three-roll problem there. <laughs> Three rolls of yellow trays to make this thing work. But that idea of not getting to adding detail and testing each level of detail that you add to see if it helps or it hurts. And so that process is actually, I've found very different from what my engineering colleagues typically do. They typically create a spreadsheet, a table with all the possible characteristics of the uh, solution, and then A through L across the top, and then they grade it, and then they add it up, and whatever the solution is that gets the highest number is the winner, and that's a very numerical, quantitative way to go at it. But it doesn't necessarily ensure that you achieve as many as possible of the desired outcomes that you want to achieve.
1: I totally agree you on that. And I'll never
3: forget this project.
1: And we all have these projects that we remember. And we did exactly what you just said, Dad. You know, we did all these possible solutions. We created them all came up with what we thought was going to be a, a work and then we said, okay, well we can solve this problem because we are engineers and there's no problem we can't solve it. But when it came down to actually implementing it, it required a whole bunch of customization. Well I'll never forget it really because when the prices came in and it was a control system that we were this was a customized control system that came in. And I'll never forget the price of the control system because it was like 30% of the total mechanical solution. Yeah. And from that day on I said, you know, okay, we have to actually start with standardized off-the-shelf shit and work backwards from that. We can't keep yep. customizing stuff because it just doesn't work. And you know, Adam and I were talking earlier about because you worked at Adam when got on the, was at the JFK Airport and I don't remember the name of the company, it's one of the big control companies, and this of course is a multi multi-year project. They have
2: two guys on it, right? You hit several now squarely in the head when you first started, right? One, let's all agree, performative sustainability is bullshit, right? You know, the whole gingerbread of spinning windmills, yeah, good luck with that. What matters is fundamentals.
3: What you're talking about, about control sequence, I think is very important. And there's another part of my technical upbringing that informs me about that, which is writing code and the idea of structured programming. And the idea of creating individual subroutines that you can test and each thing that your huge program does or each little task is a subroutine. And you can take that out and you can input all the possible inputs and make sure that all the outputs are correct. And then you can put it on yourself and set on your shelf and say, this works. This is good. And so basically I would say that when I'm designing a concept for a system and I've been going through a lot of this in the last year and a half basically I design the control sequences first that's the thing <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. the thing that I design because yeah, yeah. I design the control sequences and yeah. then I find the kit that goes with it yep. you know and so for example one of the big strategies that we're pursuing now is the idea that in a place that requires a lot of heating, and New York City arguably requires a lot of heating, there's no such thing as free cooling. (laughs) What free cooling is, is throwing away the heat that you could probably use as a resource for conditioning your perimeter and heating your domestic hot water. Basically it's about
2: recycling, right? right. That's what matters. Oh, right,
3: exactly. Yeah. So you say, okay, I've got my uh, waterside side economizer providing free heat. When it's cold enough outside that you can cool your cooling tower water down cold enough to cool your building, you're probably a lot better off running your chiller and taking the 95-degree water that it can make And using that to heat your perimeter or preheat your outdoor air or whatever it's you're doing. And so we've been pursuing this strategy. In order to do that, you know, you have to determine what are all the different configurations in which your building will find itself and what are the control responses that you have to have to deal with that particular circumstance. The circumstance being, you know, the conjunction of occupancy and internal heat gain and required ventilation and what's going on with the outdoors with respect to temperature and uh, solar heat gain, et cetera. And
2: so looking
3: at five or six or eight different circumstances and figuring out how your system is going to respond to those circumstances. And then, like I said, you go to put the kit on it. You find out some things, for example, there could be a circumstance in your building where you've got actually a very low heating requirement and a large cooling requirement and so the thing you would like to do in that circumstance is you would like to reject the heat from your chiller plant at a lower temperature so that the chiller would be more efficient so you might want to separate out a small chiller that's going to be operating to make the 95 degree water. By the way, all of our terminal systems in these buildings that we're doing are designed to do sensible cooling with 55 degree water and all the building space heating with 95 degree water. Yeah, and, nice. See, and absolutely. so then you will find out that oh, well, this little chiller making this smaller amount of heat, if it's a centrifugal, uh, it's not going to be able to operate at less than 50% part load and have the lift from the required chill water temperature to your 95 degrees. So we're going to have to make that our pony chiller, which also meets small cooling loads and meets small heating loads, is going to have to be a positive displacement device so mm-hmm. that it can operate at low part loads with the required lift. But, you know, we came to that conclusion about the kit that we needed after we had created all the different scenarios in which the building had to operate and what were the sequences that were going to deploy this kit.
2: Yeah, I mean, the dirty secret of design is, that no one talks about, is most systems run at half or 60 or 70% load, right? I'm a big fan of having right-sized seasonal equipment, right site tutors. The trouble is, when you get to value engineering, oh, that starts getting tough, right? That's
3: true. I mean, the big thing that's getting value engineered in our projects in New York right now, their initial aspiration is to get rid of burning all fossil fuels in the building. And there are a few electric air-to-water heat pump products out there that can make 95 to 100 degree Fahrenheit Hot water when it's zero degrees Fahrenheit outdoors. But they're not that many. There are three or four manufacturers who can do that. Those products are extremely expensive. Yeah. But what we found is that by doing this condenser water space heating, is that the actual annual load on our hot water loop is reduced by two thirds to three quarters. So that uh, it becomes significantly less important what is the carbon footprint of your supplemental heating because you've managed to reduce that significantly. Most of the building heating and most of the domestic hot water is being provided by heat which you have harvested from the interior of your building.
2: So in terms of New York, there's a lot of recent legislation, right, about they're really doing some solid work actually, some yeoman's work because they're trying to really address the existing building stock. I mean, everyone gets excited about new buildings because they're sexy, right? But the reality is 99% of the built environment is existing. So what's going on in New York at the moment?
3: New York has just passed Local Law 97, which is a carbon emissions law. And it's scheduled to phase in at various levels of or decreasing levels, shall we say, of allowances over the next 15 years or something like that. And so I think the first, I may be wrong about this, I believe the first metric limitation will come into play in 2024. I think that's the way it's set up currently. And if you're building as carbon emissions more than what's allowed for your building type, you'll pay a fine. I can't speak to what exactly are the levels of the fines and and that sort of thing at this point in time. But a lot of building owners are scrambling with their new buildings and with their existing buildings to figure out how they're going to comply with Local Law ninety seven. Now, I've been working with a member of the ACEC, New York City Energy Code Committee. I've been a member of that committee for a number of years now, and. We've been working with the New York City Department of Building trying to give them advice to help make this law better. And I think it's a pretty good law. I think my personal major disappointment with the law is that the taxonomy for the buildings is around the International Building Code occupancy groups, OK, rather than the EPA Energy Star building types. The ENERGY STAR building types are organized around having a relatively similar energy performance, whereas the IBC occupancy groups are oriented around fire hazard, life safety, exiting, those kinds of issues. So you wind up within an individual occupancy group getting something like a full service hospital and a skilled nursing home in the same occupancy group, but obviously Mm -hmm. those things are going to have very different levels of energy consumption. And to put a metric on that occupancy group that applies to both of those building types, somebody's going to get a free pass and somebody is going to be in trouble.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So it's a big brick, right, to hit? Yeah. A big problem, but the brick (sighs) is huge. You know, going
3: forward, there are some projections about what the carbon multipliers will be for the electric source. That's a crapshoot because we have a major nuke on Long Island that we're probably going to lose. I think it's on Long Island. Or maybe we've lost one on Long Island. There's one north of the city that we're going to lose. But nuclear is projected to go out of the picture. And the question is whether or not, you know, renewables can come in to pick up the slack, shall we say. And, of course, New York City does have a significant hydro component from upstate New York and Niagara Falls and that, our carbon multipliers are not as low as the Pacific Northwest, but they're not as high as Ohio. You know, the question is, are they going to come down or go up? And we don't know the answer to that. There are a lot of questions about what is going to be the impact on the grid with buildings electrifying, because there's some incentives in the law for electrification. That's one of the aspirations that some of these new projects have to become entirely, at least on site, fossil fuel free, realizing that they're getting the benefit of fossil fuel energy through their electric supply
0: to some extent. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding, plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. brother I have
2: questions. What's Why aren't our buildings more like cars? Shouldn't our buildings warn us if something is wrong and could impact our health and safety? Why can't our buildings tell us how efficiently they're working? Why, 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 why?
1: (laughs) Well, they fit Adam, and they can. You know, our philosophy is designed for people, good buildings follow. This whole indoor environmental quality thing is becoming real important all around the world. Well, Tether have developed a mobile access property identity engine. And that enables landlords and property managers to monitor indoor environmental quality metrics, plus energy consumption. It's all about making better decisions based on real-world information. Get smart, get tethered. For more information, go to tether.co.nz. And you can also hear from Tether CEO Brandon Van Blurk on our June 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex Podcast.
0: And now, back to the show.
1: Dan, yeah, your strategy though, with, with in terms of the low temperature heating, high temperature cooling, falls really nicely with that source, doesn't it? I mean, if you're, if you're using the electrical as opposed to combustion, the efficiencies that you're getting because of your choice of the heat terminal unit, just it's a perfect marriage. And you know, we talk about that as being an exergy analysis, yes, right? And. Adam and I have talked about exergy before on the show with other guests, and we're really hoping that, you know, as time moves on, that we'll see a larger understanding, a broader understanding of these principles because it doesn't get any better when you can get hydro-based power sources, you know, with high-temperature cooling, low-temperature heating, the efficiencies that you get—like there just isn't a better combination.
3: And the process of getting from there to where we are now, it, it's kind of interesting because the first strategy that I pursued was, and this is a known strategy, is separate the process of ventilation slash dehumidification from the process of sensible heating and cool. Okay, you want two knobs, not one right?
2: you know how (laughs) radical that thought is? (laughs) How basic and radical at the same time?
3: (laughs) And and so one thing that we know is that in a really well-built building, the primary source of internal latent load are people, sweating and breathing and putting moisture in the air, right? And the more people you have, the more ventilation you need. So if you dehumidify that ventilation air you've got a linkage there you know if you've got more people they need more outdoor air and they need more dehumidification so let's just have more mass flow of that uh, uh of, of that dehumidified air so in order to get to that dehumidification we need something really cold right but if we play our cards right we can do the sensible cooling in the space with relatively warm water. So basically, you know, about five years ago, I worked on a very large project where we had a dual temperature chiller plant. So we had a chiller or two that was making 42 degree chilled water, a chiller or two that made 55 degree water, and then we had a chiller in the middle that could go either way. Okay, wasn't great at doing either one, but you know, the miracle was he could do both. Whereas the 42 was optimized for 42 and the 55 was optimized for 50, making 55 degree Fahrenheit uh, chill water. And so in order to avoid the fan energy penalty of blowing so much air, looked at our delivery devices to the space, make really robust coils you know, eight rows and 10 fins. And oh, and by the way, if you put 55 degree water into that coil, you won't be getting any condensing. So it'll be a dry coil and the pressure drop across that dry coil will be about 35 to 40% of what the pressure drop would be across a wet coil. So your fan coil, your standard fan coil motor can blow or pull through this eight-row, 10-fin coil, especially if you size it for a face velocity of, you know, 375 to 400 feet per minute. So we went with that, and then that was the solution for a while. And then it occurred either to me or somebody I was talking to, you know, that eight-row, 10-fin, if you were doing heating and you were going to limit yourself to 90-degree Fahrenheit air, or doing your heating, you know, you don't want stratification, you need the air to roll the room, as it were, you could make that 90 degree hot air with 95 degree hot water. And hey, guess what, your chiller normally makes 95 degree hot water. That was how that came about. And we've been, you know, working on that and refining that through sort of a concept for the last, year and a half two years and various little permutations of it and you know to the point where this philosophy is that when it's in all cold outside your internal heat gain is a resource that you need to utilize rather than throw away and (laughs) you only throw it away you know when you don't need any heat and oh and by the way if you need domestic hot water you ought to get that from your internal heat gain also you can always do that anyway that's uh, the thing that we're pursuing and now we're branching out and trying to look at that in a laboratory occupancy you know uh, take it beyond the office building
1: what's interesting about that whole concept is that that then can drive architectural decisions right so if you know what your fluid temperature uh, limitations are by your equipment, well, then working backwards, you design the architecture to work with those low temperatures or in heating or high temperatures in fueling.
3: That's and exactly right, because what happens then is that you really can help offset the additional first cost of filling envelopes, not only by energy saving, but also by very significant reductions in the size of your supplemental heating plant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because uh, basically, you know, we get back to this uh, concept that we talk about in Passive House, the building balance point temperature, right? So, you know, that's a kind of a squirrely concept because that building doesn't actually have a single balance point temperature. It, it has a range depending upon all kinds of things that are going on. But just as sort of a metaphor, you, you, you lower this thing. And that means that your internal heat resource is even more effective. You reduce by even more the need for any supplemental heat.
2: I mean, you're talking about the two principles of reduce and reclaim, right? Always. In any design, that should be an objective. Yes. Uh, Interesting. See, this sounds so fundamental and basic to someone who's not in our industry, but what you're saying here is basic heresy in most design offices, right? Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yes.
2: You know, I mean, one of the things
3: that it's helped me to reconcile, actually, so a conflict that I've been aware of for many, many years with regard to HVAC design is the conflict between free cooling and transport energy. A lot of people don't realize it, but a significant end-use component of building energy consumption is the amount of energy it takes you to move energy around in the building because where you create the heat is not where you use the heat. And where you create the cooling is not where you use the cooling. And you have to use energy to move what you've created from its source to where you're going to use it. And if you do a little bit of math, you'll find out that to move, let's say, one unit of heating or cooling from a source. To an end use, using air takes anywhere from four to ten times as much energy as it takes to move that same unit of energy using
2: water. This is just triggering me. I used to talk <laughs> about this in <laughs> my presentations. What's the primary reason, <laughs> reason for that is that the specific heat of water is five times the yes, specific heat air. capacity of water. It's just awesome, right? right this is like so, a school, right? What's wrong with Dallas and Ray? It all eating?
3: goes back to the first principles, you know. Yeah, and so, totally. But the problem is, is that if you want to do free cooling, and, you know, for years and years and years, free cooling was the thing. This is the thing you've got to do, free cooling, right? That's a hell of a lot harder to do with a water system than it is with an air yeah. system. Because with an air system, all you got to do is just, throw away a bunch of air from inside your building and pull in a bunch of air from outside the building. Whether you do that through a window or for a complex set of dampers for an airside economizer, you know, different ways to do it. But the thing is, when you start thinking about the internal heat gain of the building as a potential resource, then that conflict kind of goes away. You're moving everything around Mm. with water Frankly, most of the time when free cooling would be applicable, you can use that heat for something in the building and you don't even need to throw the heat away.
2: You know what free cooling looks like in a radiant system? It looks like, say, underfloor cooling using 55 degrees C water, you know, or even higher, right? I mean, Sorry, i I'm terrible with Fahrenheit. I'm a centigrade dude. Yeah, right,
3: right. 55 <laughs> F water, yes. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> eh?
2: But, yeah, I did a job in the Hamilton in Canada. So it was AAA office and labs. Displacement ventilation, radiant heating and cooling, heavy mass concrete building, solar thermal, solar wall, heat reclaim on everything. Dude, that sucker was so energy efficient. It was crazy. Uh,
3: yeah, yeah. If we're doing uh, 55 degree Fahrenheit chill water and we've got, let's say, a magnetic bearing compressor with uh, mm-hmm. inverter driven, we're looking at an IPLV of mid to high point twos. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, 0.28 issue or something like that. It's incredible. Whereas... 10 years ago, you know, making 44, 42 degree chill water, you know, we're looking at an IPLV of 0.4 plus, That's, right?
2: Someone listening to this podcast who wasn't sort of in the biz would say, well, this all sounds sensible. Why doesn't it happen? Mm-hmm. Now, in the past, it didn't happen because let's take corruption and cronyism out of it for a minute, which is rampant. We're yeah. talking about supply chains. If your first cost-driven supply chain dictates choice, right? You may as well just go straight to size of their handy unit and stick that sucker on the roof. However, today we are at a confluence of more awareness of energy use and energy efficiency. Climate change, I hate that word. Let's call it something else. But people are aware of that. But also we're going through this pandemic now, and there's a focus on schools and fresh air and proper filtration. You know, I'm just wondering if we're at a point where some real change could happen in building design, where the sort of systems you're talking about here could actually be implemented, DOAS, radiant, proper filtration, UV, high levels of insulation and high-quality construction. Do you think that's possible? I Uh, think so.
3: And, you know, this goes back to I have a history of doing lots of different building types, but one of the building types I did back in the day were archives and rare book museums. And in those facilities, you're required to have a certain rate of turnover across the filters. Yeah. Okay. And you've got HEPA filters, and likely also, if it's an archival vault, you've got gas phase filters that take out, you know, NOx, SOx, Vox, also ozone. In that circumstance, you're also doing rigorous humidity control. So you basically wind up with a system necessarily where the humidity control function is separated from the turnover of air across the filters, okay? And so it occurs to me that that same situation is relevant to the COVID era. Despite what our politically motivated leadership at CDC says, Robert, as you've been aware from- You're totally, yeah my, yeah. my rants on Facebook, <laughs> about you, it's very likely that aerosols are an important component of covid transmission depending upon the environment yeah. okay outdoors maybe not so much but outdoors it's just people spitting on you or shaking your hand or something right indoors if you've got poor ventilation it's very likely that aerosols are important and what's happening is that the mm-hmm. concentration level of the aerosols is rising because of the poor and reach an equilibrium and it's a standard Mass balance control volume engineering problem from Engineering 101, right? Yep. Totally. And so, what you want to be able to do is to keep a high turnover of air across the filters, right? Mm-hmm. And that will lower the equilibrium concentration. You know, given you've got emitters in the form of people and you've got an extraction in the form of a mass flow through and we're making that mass flow clean before it comes back. So with the standard sort of office building system that we're using where we've got these uh, fan terminals, which are draw through fan coils with ECM motors and uh, the big coils, and uh, we take outdoor air, which is very dry you know, a dew point temperature down around 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And we do that with the energy recovery dedicated outdoor air handling unit. It's got an energy recovery wheel. It's got a passive desiccant wheel. So we can use our 44 degree chill water to make 50 degree or 51 degree air off the coil. Passive desiccant wheel drops that down to 45 degree dew point, raises the temperature up to 62 so that we can supply our small conference rooms without using refeed, a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But what we had been talking about was those fan coils, you know, they got the ECM motors. What we would be doing, you know, is they would become variable flow. But in the COVID-19 era, we basically, with our low face velocity across the coil, we put a MERV 13 or 14 filter on that, and they're not variable flow. We basically control cooling or heating with the control valve on the coil Mm -hmm. rather than changing the airflow. There is an energy penalty there, obviously, but it's not huge because the pressure drop across this fan coil is relatively low. And so we can get that constant turnover of air across the filters and still be able to modulate Our sensible heating and cooling with the coil that's in the fan coil and maintain our dehumidification with the very low dew point temperature that's coming in with our ventilation air from our dedicated outdoor air handling.
0: The edifice complex will continue in just a moment.
1: Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm
2: commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, six one two, 460 8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, are we there yet? I'm
1: bored. I <laughs> well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. That's a suite. yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them, they can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you
2: time and energy. You mean that's a Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah,
1: I know, another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it, and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains.
2: Okay, I'm in, how do I find out more?
1: Got to go to censusweet.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to census Suite CEO, Glenn Sprite.
0: And now, back to the show. So it just so, made me think about
2: self-valve authority, right? So I agree, constant volume across the fan unit. But this, can we, everyone, please just do a valve authority calculation and size that valve, please. Otherwise, it's an on-off valve. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, we did
3: that. I mean, I did that. I did the study on the turndown ratio on the control valve. This goes back to, you know, what I talked about, about level of detail in another sheet of yellow traits. You know, somebody mentioned that. And so went through studying fan coils with a high outdoor air fraction, low outdoor air fraction, looked at them heating, cooling neutral maintenance and so on and so forth, and determined that we could, throughout the entire spectrum of heating and cooling requirements for this fan coil, our turndown ratio was not more than 30 to 1, which we should be able to do with a conventional valve.
1: So just a note for our listeners, in this hour, you have gotten a year's worth of engineering school. (laughs) And it didn't cost you a cent. (laughs) Just dad giving up his time. This is good
3: stuff, really. This is real life application stuff. One of the good things about the environment that I'm currently in, you know, with a lot of good and competent people, issues are brought up, you know, very specific issues. We study them and we use the right tools. And maybe this particular level of detail doesn't work and we need to do something else. Looking at, for example, Heat recovery from exhaust streams in which you can't use a wheel. That would be laboratory hood exhaust. But kitchen. the big deal is kitchen exhaust. So one of the things I've learned about laboratories is that for most laboratories, the hood exhaust is actually a small fraction of the total exhaust because there's a required unoccupied four air changes in yeah. the lab space yeah. and occupied six air changes. And what with modern hoods where the sashes are not open that much and blah, 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 that actually the fraction of the total exhaust going across the hood is relatively small. By small, I mean, you know, maybe 15% or something. The rest of that exhaust for most laboratories from the room can go across the wheel. You don't really need to do the runaround coil type of thing. And we studied that and found out it just wasn't cost effective to put the runaround coil just on the lab exhaust. Plus, you got into some real problems when it got really cold outside because you will wind up uh, frosting the primary coil in the exhaust string because you get this supplier coming in at 15 degrees Fahrenheit, then the water, the circulating fluid is going to be below freezing, and you'll wind up frosting your primary coil, which you don't want to. Mm-hmm. But for kitchens, that's a big deal. And, you know, doing our study, we think it's pretty easy to achieve, you know, 50 to 55% recovery efficiency on a runaround coil. We need to be on the primary side, which yeah. is the exhaust side. We need to be downstream of uh, you know electrostatic precipitator, otherwise our coil becomes not a coil but a <laughs> chunk of grease.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm a big fan of heat pipe recovery because it's low maintenance, right? The problem with wheels is they don't get maintained that but you got a pump. Yeah. That's all you got. You
3: got a pump. Yeah. And if you're worried about it, you can put a washdown cycle. I wouldn't recommend doing it without. An electrostatic air cleaner upstream of the yeah. coil, but with that, even that, if you're still worried, you can put down a relatively inexpensive washdown cycle just to clean the coil from time to time.
2: Yeah. Cool. So we're coming up on the hour. We try to keep to an hour, so we're going to ask you some rapid-fire questions here. Oh, okay. I'll go first. So, what advice would you give to a young graduate? Think of someone who's just graduated there. Uh, mechanical engineering degree. They've just come out of NYU. They've been told at NYU they're masters of the university, the current people in the world. What advice would you give them going into our business?
3: We're presuming that they've decided they want to go into our industry. Yeah, I know that's
2: a bit of a stretch, but let's go with that.
3: Well, (laughs) I think it's very important, you know, early on to get as broad an experience as you possibly can you know, I think about the things that have informed my career and, you know, there are a wide range of things. You know, being able to get out into the field and see stuff is important. Uh, On the other hand, you know, actually one thing, and I don't think most people would have the opportunity to do this anymore, but (laughs) writing code for (laughs) building modeling was extremely important to my understanding of just what's going on, you know, inside of different uh, pieces of equipment and 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 what's going on. The whole idea of uh, doing mass balances and things like that. So somehow or another, there's this sort of mixture of of keeping first principles in mind, yes, and at the same time getting in the field and seeing stuff and seeing it get built and seeing it not work right and,
2: and, <laughs> and have to learning three times a day
3: <laughs> what can go wrong and how you make stuff work right So if they go to work for a firm that has some commissioning for example capability, work not only in design but also in commissioning both because the broader mm-hmm. your base the better engineer I think you'll be. And never lose sight, you know, of those first principles and keep making little spreadsheets, you know, and maybe even if you draw, you can draw the control volume on Microsoft Excel. A lot of the spreadsheets that I still do, you know, doing analysis, for example, what is the required dew point temperature for this ventilation airstream to maintain 74 degrees Fahrenheit, 50 percent relative humidity in the top floor of this building, which is 1,200 feet tall. So when I do that spreadsheet that does that calculation, I draw the building to do my stack pressure calculation. I draw the room, you know, using the outlines, and, and I don't necessarily put the people in there, but I put 20 people at, you know, 200 BTUs per hour, which by the way is about 0.5 pounds of moisture, you know. And and keep doing that kind of analysis to help you understand fundamentally what's going on. That it isn't, despite the fact that you deal indirectly through the equipment with these things, to keep in your mind and with your calculations. Really, what's going on from a first principle standpoint? Heat transfer, mass balance, all those kinds of things.
1: Damn right. So, Dan, let's just say you're uh, 200 years old, you're looking down upon the world, and architecture has evolved to what you wanted to see when you were a practicing architect and engineer, you know, 140 years earlier. And architecture changed because of the words that you left behind in your legacy. What were those words? What did architects hear from you that made them change the way that architecture was done?
3: Well, I think it goes back to what I said about the discipline of design. To design your projects based upon a set of desired outcomes. And those desired outcomes, you know, are... I mean, some of them could be like save the planet, but some of them could be like come in under budget, you know, make the client happy, those kinds of things. Be accessible to everyone from an architectural standpoint. There are lots of different desired outcomes. But the thing about that process is is that it keeps you always aware of what it is you're trying to achieve. And yeah, during the course of the process, you're going to have to give up on some of those desired outcomes, but you need to be aware of that. Something has come up. It's not going to be possible for me to satisfy both the desired outcome to be within the budget and the second outcome, which is to be the most energy efficient building that there ever was, okay? But the point is, is that if you go through a process like that, You are always aware of what you're going to achieve and what you can't, what you may save for the next one when you know more, when the technology is better, you know, when you have a different client with a different budget and so on and so forth. But that's the advice that I would give. And what I think is that if architecture were pursued in that fashion, and that, you know, presuming that most architects are decent, and engineers both for that matter, are decent human beings, and that the list of desired outcomes, you know, is partially pragmatic and partially aspirational, that certainly our built environment would continue to improve. Sounds like the beginnings of a commencement speech.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? And if I was going to get that down to a hashtag, we got to start a design movement called Outcome Based Design. Uh, yes, there you go. Trademark, Dan.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there actually already is in the healthcare area. There is a thing like that, but it looks more on achieved real outcomes and then factoring tactics uh, in to the design. But but. But basically, these outcomes are really more general guides to the whole design rather than just specific solutions for, let's say, surgical suites or something like that.
2: You've got to keep the macro in mind, right? you got to keep yes. the objective yeah, in yeah. mind. Yeah.
3: So these desired outcomes, you know, for the whole building. And then as we go forward, you know, we can get to, another layer of yellow trace, another level of detail and determine whether or not that works. And part of the criteria now for determining whether or not that works is from this outcome-based design sort of idea. Oh, yeah, we could do this, but when this guy over here tried it, it didn't work at all. So let's throw this sheet away and
2: and put on a new one. Yeah, good times, man. All right, Dan, we'll we'll wrap it up here. Thank you very much for coming on. You're the university lecturer and college lecturer I needed when I was in school because I'm a visual guy and you're clearly visual by the way you talk yeah. about doing drawings on spreadsheets. And that's what's missing. There's too many professors in engineering school who are all about their book and how clever they are and they can't bring it to the real world, right? They can't bring you that macro real world example. And that's what's missing. There's a gap in the education market here for people like yourself to be teaching graduates or undergraduates. There's stuff. So man, we've got to find a way to make that happen, Robert. There's a business, yeah. there, I'm telling you. There we go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. So, Dan, well, wow, okay. I really enjoyed that. You know, he's the college lecturer I had dreamed of having, but didn't really have. Yeah, right. The lens that he looks
1: through, you know, from his education and as an English grad and then architectural mm-hmm. and then engineering and then Developing the practical skills that you have by getting your hands dirty. You know that he talked later on about getting out of the field. You know, working yeah. if you can't get a job with a commissioning agent or an engineer from the dust commissioning because, I mean, as a commissioner, that's where the rubber hits the road. Right? That's
2: where you find out what really works, mate. <laughs> <laughs> when there's two weeks to go till opening,
1: <laughs> right? And everybody's screaming about the overruns and about <laughs> opening up and you know maybe there's penalty clauses and it's like it's high pressure shit but that's when you're converting concepts and theories into actual real working shit and then you're seeing if the math works
2: (laughs) yeah that's where theory and math meet real world meet consequences right that's (laughs) just a collision
1: (laughs) you can't run from it and that's the thing about commissioning right is that you cannot run from it like it's that's in your face, and it either works or it doesn't, you know?
2: Well, someone said to me once, I hate it when you guys come. He said, because everyone who's made those mistakes have moved on, and I'm left here <laughs> holding the bag, and you're kicking my head every <laughs> totally, day. <laughs> totally, right? Yeah, yeah. But there's a huge amount
1: of joy in that. Yeah. You know, when we would go to commission a job that we engineered, right? Where that was part yeah. of our requirement. And, you know, so you're sitting in your office for months at a time, you know, doing all of the conceptual stuff, and then converting that into math and, and the numbers and then you're coming up with you know concept schematics and then you're yeah. doing the velocity calculations and temperature and you're doing log mean temperature stuff and efficient, you're doing all that shit and then when you go out to the job site and you start doing the valve authority, verifying it, yeah. balancing the systems out watching the temperature profiles watching the pressures change as they're supposed to change and when you sit back and you see everything do what you calculated
2: there is no better feeling. I tell you, man. It's amazing. And with the technology now with BAS, like if I look at a BAS train graph and I can see the valve hunting, I know that authority is wrong on that valve. I can tell that within a second of looking at that graph. <laughs> yeah, totally, Dan right? Dan spoke about something that's really important that engineers really don't appreciate, I don't think, in our business. So he was talking about design technique and style, right? So yeah, he has nice. a design process, like the first principles, keep it outcome-based, keep it visual, you know, always checking back in when he's doing the calculations to the big picture, the macro picture, the objective. And I think a lot of engineers lose that sometimes. They get so stuck into the energy model or the spreadsheet and they don't yeah. get their head out enough and think, you know, is this really right? Because that yeah. spreadsheet, once you start it, it takes you down this path, right? And you're looking for that box at the end with the number and it's like, yeah, boom, coffee, next one, right? And there's no... Iteration back to yeah. what is the big picture here. So, you know, his skill stack of English architecture and engineering is almost perfect, really, to be a design engineer for a building because you're considering everything, right? Yeah. And beginning Talk- with the end in mind, you've got that architect's mindset. What I say sometimes when I speak is I say to architects, you and I have something in common, right? We are interested in the outcome working. Properly and looking great. They're mostly interested in it looking great. To be fair, hashtag burn Arctic. <laughs> uh, I, you know, we're interested in the final product. Whereas if I'm a electrical engineer, I'm in my silo. I'm selecting things. I'm designing things, and I'm not really getting out of that silo too much, right? And the other thing I say to architects when I speak to them on message, you know, you architects will affect the mechanical sizing of this plant, the sizing the chutes and, and the boilers way more than any Mechanical engineer, well, because your decisions will drive the size of those Absolutely. things, right? Absolutely. You know, and again, that gets lost. Whereas if you take Dan's approach of keep iterating back to the big picture, you're thinking about that.
1: Right? Yeah, it totally. Yeah. And the computer jockeys, you know, Peter Simons, simulation j- <laughs> that terminology, <laughs> <of> like. <laughs> but you're right. They get their heads into this box, and they're playing on the keyboard and the mouse, and they're. Spreadsheeted out, you know, yeah. and, and it's just like their whole internal drive is to produce this spreadsheet that just yeah. for them is the art of the science. And there is an art to that we talked about that in previous podcasts. But until you step back, close the computer, and look at what does this mean yeah. in the bigger picture, you're not really contributing in a holistic way. You're just a cog in the machine. There's a huge value to the approach that dad talked about. Yeah, Step there is. Back, look at the big picture, you know, yeah. how
2: does this all work? See, what great. struck me most when he was talking was to some people, what he said was heresy, and to me, it was beautiful. <laughs> totally. Because <laughs> it was correct, because the only thing I've come to realize as I get old and I'm old, the only thing I really respect is excellence and competence in anything, yeah. right? Yeah. If I see something half-assed, it just drives me crazy. Yeah. Maybe I'm a, I'm a psycho and a Nazi, as some people <laughs> pointed out. But the point is, you know, take a Porsche for example. I have a soft spot for Porsche. But yeah, you know, a thing of beauty, that art, that engineering, everything is in that thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and even a car now, like just take a Ford, know, a Ford Explorer. That thing is an engineering marvel, right? And not necessarily too ugly. <laughs> You know, that is what engineering's about, right? It's about getting that outcome, but that outcome has to represent a form of excellence,
1: right? Yeah, and if you think about the automobile industry, I mean, they were tested many decades ago on their yeah. excellence, right? And consumers basically said, "Like we're done," mm-hmm. you know. And so now you had like consumer reports. You had what's the uh, quality assurance award every year? J.D. Powers. Yeah, and you've got a
2: lemon so, law, right, in
1: the US. You've got a lemon law. Yeah. You know, so all of these things came into play because the automobile industry basically let society down. Yes. Not only in terms of the economic penalties that they left behind and people because the materials broke down, didn't work, but there's also the crap that went on in terms of sustainability principles. They were all ignored. I mean, well,
2: it was all ignored. The outcome was horrible. It was unsafe. Think of Ralph Nader, right? Yeah. They still hate him to this day. (laughs) What did that poor guy do other than save hundreds and hundreds of people's lives?
1: (laughs) Right, you know? And we don't really have that yet for buildings, you know? We really, I don't know where this happens, Adam. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but the building industry somehow exists in its own world. Yeah, it's in a vacuum and it's immune. From society pressure to improve and somehow we have to break those walls down where society can pass judgment, give ratings, send a message to the world of property yeah. development that we're done, we're
2: fed up, this is <laughs> bullshit. The only real power in today's world is aggregate consumer disobedience.
1: Mm. So if
2: people stop buying shitty new houses, you know what, shitty new houses will not be built. Yeah, I, that's, I know, but I, that's hard, that. right? Yeah in a growing yeah. population, in an economy that's driven by growth and growing immigration, which is really important to the economy, you know, it's hard. But somehow there needs to be a consumer rebellion or a builder-user rebellion on aggregate to yeah. make a change. I don't know how to do that. Maybe we should start the resistance hashtag resistance. Well, and, yeah,
1: <laughs> maybe. I mean, to some degree, New York, because you asked the question from Dan about uh, Local Law 97, you know, that's part of it, part of the change that's necessary and you know reducing carbon emissions looking at sources of power and the building performance and ultimately the heat terminal units that are used in the mechanical system so that's definitely part of it and you know what's cool about that again going back to the principles of design but there's a guy that can talk about these macro things and then all of a sudden he's talking about eight road ten fin coil <laughs> 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 how many architects can do that <laughs> you know like that's the cool thing about Dan is that but again, he uses the terminology broad experience. Yes. You know, and we've asked many guests in the past in terms of advice. And, you know, we talk about Marcel Harmon, for example, and his, and you use the term stacked yeah. education or stacked experience. And Dan represents that. Like many of our guests do. Yeah. They've got this stacked education, stacked experience, broad experiences, and it allows them to be able to look at these challenges from a macro perspective. But they also get the pixels, you know? They can yeah. look at the total picture, but they understand each of the pixels. That's powerful stuff.
2: That stack experience, Dan, like a lot of people our age, he got that stack by accident. I got my stack by accident. I just bumped into things and did things. And then, fast forward 40 years, you had the skill stack, right? And he's the same. Yeah. There needs to be a strategy to try and make that stack more deliberate and planned for. You know, as a graduate, you could say to someone, look, right, you've got an engineering degree, great, you're going to get your PE, that's awesome, right? But then why don't you try and stack on this, this, and this over a period of 10, 15 years, right? And yeah. you will come out of that a well-rounded performer.
1: I just had this idea. How many of you think of our past guests, Maybe of our past guests are listening, you know, where we could get up on a roundtable discussion in front of a Princeton University or Cornell or yeah. Waterloo or BCIT, you know, and as grumpy old men and women talk <laughs> about the importance of uh, the stack effect yeah, you know? yeah. and we still sit there with all the of our picture. wisdom and knowledge because a lot of this what you're talking about if you have a good mentor you know one of the things both you and i i think have had really good mentors and a good mentor is not a flash in the pan they're interested in your lifetime career
2: yeah they're gonna they guide
1: you. always yeah they're gonna guide you they'll always be there you know and I've been incredibly fortunate in my own career and always have mentors who have always been interested in my life, in my career, in my family, all of that type of stuff. And you can't put a dollar figure on that.
2: No, I mean, if you was a graduate and you worked under Dan for two years, it'd be the luckiest two years of your life. You just wouldn't know, right? (laughs) You'd just be hating
1: (laughs) it. (laughs) You hit the nail right on the head. I think both of us have had this experience. When we're in the thick of things, we're not really aware of what we're actually learning and the value of that learning right? Uh, and what it means to have somebody over top of you uh, mentoring and guiding me. But when you come through that kind of stuff and you look back, you go, yeah. wow, what was that worth? <laughs> exactly,
2: man. It's like buds for engineers, right? Two years them. <laughs> <a day. laughs> yeah. 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 That's totally, man. right? There's businesses in these ideas. But anyway, yeah, my brain is hurting, so we should wind up for now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I
2: love okay, that. Okay, man. So, them, so I'll see you on the next down. one. That was great. I really enjoyed it. All that.
1: right. Okay, Adam.
0: Okay. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex Podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.